If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is. We believe that everything has a history. We mean absolutely everything. So it's not just objects. We 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 think about emotions. We think about bizarre things as well. That was Sam Willis talking about his distinctive approach to examining the past. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Today's episode is a joint interview with the historian and broadcaster Sam Willis and Professor James Daybell of the University of Plymouth. Together, they've written a new book entitled Histories of the Unexpected. And this was the subject of their conversation with our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorne. So today I'm down in Exeter and I'm joined by uh, Sam Willis and James Daybell, who are the hosts of the Histories of the Unexpected podcast. And they're also the authors of a new book based on the podcast of the same name. Um, So the series looks at the surprising histories behind everything um, in our everyday lives, from beards and clouds and clocks to courage, bubbles, smiling and even holes. So to start us off, I wonder whether you could just tell us What is the idea behind Histories of the Unexpected? The idea behind Histories of the Unexpected is um, it's deceptively simple. Um, It is we believe that everything has a history. We mean absolutely everything. So it's not just objects. We 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 think about emotions. We think about bizarre things as well. So uh, we've done done one on the lean, for example. We're really interested in the history of people leaning over and buildings leaning over. Um, What we wanted to do was to demonstrate that everything has a history, but also there's another key part of it, and that is that everything links together in unexpected and often rather magical ways. So that's what we do. So, for example. The history of the hand uh, links to scrofula and the royal touch or the history of clouds uh, is actually about um, miasma and cholera. Yes. Um, Or the history of the smile or the history of cats or the history I found out the other day of the bubble is in fact all about the French Revolution. That's right. So we we come up with these these ideas. We, we, We sort of challenge ourselves to write a history of something which we weren't necessarily sure had a history. Um, 
and then I mean, it, it's always like it's like a professional challenge between us, isn't it? It's a game. Like, can, it's, 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 can you write the history of dust, <laughs> or can you write the history of snow, or mountains, or it's, whatever? Yeah, one of the one of the weirdest things recently was when we were when we were thinking about how to turn the podcast into a book. Uh, we went for a long walk and just tried to come up with uh, with thirty different topics. And I remember having having sort of finalised everything, and then driving home, Sam sort of looked at a tree and saw it tilting over. And he said, we should do the history of the lean. And I thought, that's brilliant, but I had no idea (laughs) how on earth we were going to be able to do it. So where did the very first concept for this come up? That came up from... um, The idea originally came from me when I was leading a tour around HMS Victory. And I was explaining all about the ship and the battles it had fought in and all the crew that had been on board and what they ate, the kind of the predictable standard things in history that you might expect. Uh, and then we walked around to the, the stern of the ship and if you can imagine HMS Victory in your mind, it's got an amazing window at the back. It's like a, it's like a, um, a conservatory. It's like a conservatory on the back of a tank. This thing is built as a warship, but it's glazed. It's an extraordinary thing. And someone said... To me, why is this window here? And I have a PhD in naval history. I've written an enormous amount of books on naval history. I had no answer. And then it, I looked into it. I thought, what is, the, what is the history of the window? And it's more than that. It's actually the history of looking in the 18th century. And you can only explain why there is a window on the back of a sailing warship if you understand the history of looking, particularly looking through windows in the 18th century. And it's amazing. Anyway, I then suggested this to James, and I thought, I'm I'm doing something slightly off the wall here. He said, no, I know exactly what you're talking about, because oranges are all about the gunpowder plot. I thought, what? But I also said the history of the window is not about the Enlightenment and about ways of looking. It's, in fact, all about defenestration. It's all about the start of the Thirty Years' War and throwing people out of windows. Yeah. Um, Or it's about um, iconoclasm, and it's about smashing windows. Yeah. Um, And then we realised that we're trained completely differently as historians. I'm trained in 18th century maritime naval history primarily, although I have done a lot of other stuff, and you're primarily a... Manuscripts. Um, uh, manuscripts, um, Tudor history, early modernist. Yep. Um, and if you... We discovered that if you get a theme or an idea or a subject, um, we both had things to say about it, but they were both completely different. And that kind of blew our minds and made the whole process of discovery absolutely fascinating. Because when you have two historians coming at the same thing from a different perspective, you realise that there's a kind of mind-blowing complexity of history. And this is a good way of exposing that. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, I yeah. mean, for me also, it's about... I always say that it's a combination of sort of comparative history, comparative and global history, a sort of cultural history, um, meets a sort of um, material culture and object biography. So there, there is actually this sort of deep... Um, methodological core to it as well. Yeah. I think, as well as it being very silly, very, very, <laughs> very silly and, and and fun, but it, it but intellectually, it's really it's really interesting. How do you take a topic and look at it from all sorts of different angles and think about it across time, globally, you know, spatially? In that's in in the round like that. Yeah, and a lot of the things we do is we don't we don't necessarily provide the answer. Um, well, we do, we do in the book. That's what we did in the book. But a lot of the podcast is is kind of raising questions. So if you say, think off the top of your head, what is the history of lions about? Um, and then we we would say, well, it's all about uh, the symbolism of lions on shields or on yeah, it's ships. It's all about it's all about Gustavus Adolphus 
uh, and who's the the Lion of Sweden, yeah. uh, sort of seventeenth uh, century uh, fantastic uh, leader uh, of Sweden, and it's about the sinking of the Vasa ship. So you'd just been on holiday yeah. in Sweden, you'd just seen it. Yeah. So for you, lions were all about this sunken warship, yeah. and it was about this, this symbol of but for you, they were Swedish about monarchy. They were about uh, pet lions. Pet lions, but also I'd just been reading something on the Wizard of Oz. Yes, um, just weirdly, and the cowardly lion in the Wizard of Oz, um, and that's got an amazing history to it. And someone had finally worked out what on earth the Wizard of Oz is all about, and it's um, it's it's a sort of hugely complex commentary on America in the nineteen twenties, and um, for years no one had understood it, but some as a history teacher in America came up with the answer in about the nineteen twenties. He suddenly realised that it wasn't just one thing that was symbolic in The Wizard of Oz. It was all of it. It was the yellow brick road, it was the tin man, it was the cowardly lion. So for me, lions were all about The Wizard of Oz at that time. And then they were about hunting lions. I got quite into mountain lions. Pet lions, lions in zoos. Yeah. Um, It sounds quite scatterbrainy, but it's not because it is actually all linked together. Well, that leads me on to my next question, which is you come up with these concepts, you go on a long walk and you say, right, we're doing the history of bubbles. Where on earth... Do you start? I mean, one of the things that we tried to do with the book was to bring in quite a lot of personal mm-hmm. anecdotal information to sort of breathe that sort of personal angle into it. But there's a lot of um, there's a lot of research that goes into it. So one of the first things we do, we both have access to university libraries and databases of articles and, and books. And so there's a lot of sort of bibliographical research that goes on around it. And a lot of... Contacts and colleagues, professional. We know an awful lot of professional historians. I mean, I think also we've been we've been in this business for between us like fifty years. Yeah, and so you you know so um, you pick up a lot on the way. And you know, I for example have taught. Um, I taught in, for a while in the US, and so I taught the equivalent of a sort of Plato to NATO course. And so I've got this huge sort of reach uh, of history that I that I sort of. Um, you know, use all the time. The way we start is definitely to open up the box of our heads and look and rummage around inside because that's always gives you a solid foundation to be able to talk off the top yeah. of your head anyway. Like, I have this experience of finding some letters in the National Archives that talked about bubbles or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then, or, it, so you've actually got an answer or you you kind of, you use your brain to think about what aspect of that you would like to understand. So when we did Bubbles, I knew that I'd seen a painting, an 18th century French painting, a yep. beautiful painting of a boy leaning over a windowsill blowing a bubble. Um, I couldn't remember what it was, but I knew that that would be my starting point and I'd be able to talk about that bubble. And I also knew just vaguely that Newton, Isaac Newton had worked out how to measure the thickness of a bubble. Um, and then, I, so I, that was going to be the things that I talked about. And for me, it was about childhood. So it's about children blowing bubbles. And there's a wonderful collection of bubble blowers at the Victorian Albert Museum of Childhood. And so we did some some work on that. Just little, also, little pipes that people blew little bubbles. Pipes, yeah. yeah. Um, and they're all sorts of, you know, and people collect these, the collectibles or plastic items. But also I wanted to think about the bubble as a concept and... You know, people living in a bubble, so sort of enclosed. And this got us to thinking about monasticism, early monasticism. Hermits. Uh, hermits. We're thinking about, I mean, monasticism and hermits and then um, 
thinking about the different kinds of bubble, like the Oxford bubble, the, the Westminster bubble, but then also this letters to ornamental hermits. Uh, and in the 18th and 19th century, ornamental hermits were people who would live in your garden uh, and you would go along and, and you would see them. And they're, they're the precursor to the garden gnome, uh, which we have nowadays. Yeah. I really enjoy bubbles. It's one of the ones yeah. I'm most proud of. I'm most proud of the lean because we weren't sure how we were going to do it and the bubble. I liked hair. You liked hair. I just want to go back to the lean because just quickly. Okay, go on, go on, because go on. that was that was for, it was all about leaning buildings. So it's a, it was a change from medieval architecture. So if you think of the shambles in York, um, where you've got the tiny narrow medieval streets, all the streets crowded over, leaning over each other. And there are no straight lines anywhere. And then you, you, you contrast that with um, Paris, like 19th century yeah. Paris, which being all of the medieval stuff's been removed. Everything's straight lines. Everything's very perpendicular, and it was all to do. It was all to do with like the fear of the medieval, the fear of um, superstition. It was to do with uh, the fear of disease and cleanliness reflected in buildings. And then, and then we did the human lean, um, which is to do with the history of walking sticks and the way that disabled sailors are depicted in contemporary yeah. cartoons. And then we did, then we did the Hollywood lean. Oh, that was, was so cool. James, James, James Dean. And then it was about deportment. And then it was about leaning on people. Oh, ladies walking around with, with, ladies ha- with, walking with books, around with on, books their on their heads. Yeah. But then leaning on people was about gangsterism uh, and about thumbscrews, which then... Led to the signature. Led to the signature. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. So they do all lead on from one another in the yes. book, all the topics. Yes. Um, as you say, the lean leads on to the signature. Yeah. James, you wanted to write or talk about leaning on people and pressure and bullying people, basically, which led on to the history of torture. And then we were doing Guy Fawkes and Thumbscrews. And he's got this very famous signature of him signing a confession yeah. to um, being responsible for the gunpowder plot, which has been signed in a very kind of shaky hand. And then we suddenly found ourselves with Guy Fawkes' signature, which had been written after he'd been tortured. He'd yeah. been lent on quite which severely. And we suddenly went, oh, but the history of the signature is interesting because 
I noticed that that Guy Fawkes' signature had at that moment changed from Guy Fawkes before being tortured to Guy Fawkes after being tortured. So Guy Fawkes, his signature itself had a little personal history um, which kind of followed his his life experience. And then I loved the signature. It was fantastic, wasn't it? Nelson's got a very interesting signature because uh, he lost an arm so his his signature has a personal history as well this is just one aspect of the signature um you can talk about where you sign letters which is really yeah. interesting so this is the history of it's people who have been injured they might have suffered a stroke that's very common it's one of the most common things that affects people's handwriting funnily enough um and so nelson loses an arm i mean he has to learn to write left-handed um so he, he has a, a new signature we've got we've got letter showing his first attempt at writing left-handed different kind of signature and then he he his his name changes he goes from vice admiral to well, he goes promoted up to vice admiral um he has he then gets knighted he then becomes a baron he has to change his he doesn't know what to call himself he has this kind of terrible personality crisis um, and kind of practices with different names. He becomes Baron Nelson Bronte, Baron of the Nile, and you know it, just, it gets very confusing. Um, so yeah, his personal signature changes. So you've got a kind of chronology yeah. of the signature that develops over time. But the signature is also a way of looking at Tudor politics. So if you think about the, if you think particularly in the reign of Henry VIII, the king's signature was one of the mechanisms for. Uh, getting anything done and for power and who had control of his sign manual so that's the signet um, was very important the signature is also about universal literacy so it's a way of measuring literacy across across time so how does that work so basically you the a very sort of crude measurement for literacy so the ability to read and write is whether you can sign your name or not Um, and it's not perfect but what it means is you can look at it across time you can look at it all over the world. All you need to do is collect signatures. The distinction is between whether somebody signs or makes a mark. If they sign, they're deemed to be literate. If they make a mark, they're deemed to be illiterate. And so you can get these sort of huge statistics, mm. you know, over time and look at how how literacy shifts and changes over time. Well, William, William Shakespeare's to, parents. Yeah. Literate yeah, or both, illiterate? Both both wrote um both wrote marks. Yeah. So we have property documents that survive. So a mark is like a little squiggle yeah. because you it can't might be a cross, spell your name. A cross. But some of them are very elaborate. So merchants would have had very elaborate marks that would have been, you know, a butcher might have had, a, I don't know, a pig's head or something. Or, what would yours have been? You know, what would mine have been? Day bell. I have no idea. <laughs> Day and a, you know, I don't, I suppose a half a bell uh, and then a sun, you know, on, on it. Not a smiley face. Uh, they're basically emojis. It could they? be, could be a emojis. Basically, basically emojis. I want to go back to um, <laughs> we 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 lost the thread of what we were talking about earlier on, which was this idea about the about everything leading into each other. So one chapter leading on to to the next. And I think at the heart of the the concept of this book, as Sam said at the beginning, is that everything has a history, but also everything links together in unexpected ways. So one of the things that we wanted to do in this book was to basically show how each chapter led to the next. And then the clever thing is, am I allowed to say it was clever? I think it is quite clever. <laughs> um, the, the whole book comes full circle. So we start with the hand, we go through gloves, blah, 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 blah. We end up with the lean and the signature, and then the signature leads back to the front of the book, which encourages our readers uh, to, for a second read. Yeah, I think they'll um, need it because they won't know what we're talking about. <laughs> but, 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 one, but one of the interesting things is how we achieved that. 
So we didn't sit down and sort of go, right, the hand, next comes the gloves, next comes... We came up with 30 different topics. Some of them naturally flowed into each other. But then we had to very... We had a stage, once we'd written all the chapters, we then had a couple of weeks where we worked you know, very hard on forming these links how does clocks move into needlework, for example? How does yes. rubbish go into snow? How, do, how does how does clocks move into needlework? I can't um. remember. So it's all essentially a massive um, game of degrees of separation. Yes, exactly, exactly it. what it yeah. is. Mm-hmm. Now, I think what we wanted to do is to tap into the kind of mind-blowing complexity that scholars, professional historians, have achieved. They use all sorts of different approaches, all sorts of methodologies, research techniques. There are people doing PhDs now which are absolutely mind-blowing, wonderful stuff. And we wanted to find a way of sort of tapping into that complexity, but also making, still making it accessible and fun. Um, and I think we've done it. But it's, we, we, all we try and do as well is root it in, in the latest, most interesting research. Yeah. Yeah, I think that I think that's right. And we've both written though the other other kinds of history. You know, we both you have a career of of writing maritime history. No, I've written biographies. Um, I've written biographies. histories of battles. Yep. Very kind of straightforward yep. stuff. But we wanted to deliberately mess it up. I think that raises an interesting point about public history generally, which you're both very involved yep. in. Do you think we're over reliant on standard narratives? No, I just don't think. Um, no, I don't think that at all. I I, I don't think. It's being reliant on it. I just think you haven't been presented with enough options, mm-hmm. basically. Um, yeah, public history is incre- it's an incredibly complex and contested area, um, you know. And I think, in some ways, academic historians, you know, preaching to the public, uh, can be slightly patronising, um, and that's something I'm, you know, very wary of. There's another sort of side of public history which is about the public having ownership of that history. And I think some publishers can also important. be publishers. People who make people who make books and people who make TV programs can be very conservative. So you can come up with a crazy idea like this, and you know, might you know, someone might say, "Well, actually, if you wrote a biography of Nelson, that's got an established market. We know that'll sell." Um, and so we've been working with Atlantic Books. They've been absolutely fantastic and have and have embraced um, us trying to sort of change the paradigm a bit. Um, yeah. But not everyone thinks like that. It's even harder getting um, off-the-wall stuff on telly. That tends to be very predictable or very much based around discovery, what's in the news, what's 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 the kind of the latest thing. Something I found interesting in the book is that it's not just um, irreverent, bizarre facts. There is actually some real serious, oh, yeah, very, sometimes yeah. quite yeah, yeah, dark yeah. history yeah, in here yeah, as yeah, well, yeah. and you weren't Absolutely. afraid to shy away from that. No, no, no. I mean, that's that's very, very important. I mean, for example, the chapter on needlework... We discovered these um, memory cloths um, of women who had lived through apartheid. And what they'd done was they had stitched their life stories into these memory cloths that became part of the sort of um, the sort of um, reconciliation programme. Um, and you've got some wonderful examples, but incredibly harrowing, um, you know, pictures of rape and, and, and murder and, and all sorts of crimes. So that sort of starts off the chapter that then leads through discussions of the giving of gifts and tapestries. There's oh, the Armada tapestries. Ireland. Abuse in Ireland. And there's this wonderful um there's this wonderful discussion of the materials at the Foundling Museum. The Foundling Museum, the sort of 
museum set up for orphan children. And there's some wonderful work done on this. Um, when mothers left their children, they left them with little fragments, yeah. little pieces of fabric um, that, are, that, that I would identify them later on, um, which, are, which are wonderful sort of emotional pieces um, that sort of connect um, mothers to children and, and stories about, about orphans. But also you've got, about, you've got several thousand examples of these that survive, and it is one of the best collections of ordinary people's clothing and material that survives from that period. So it's not, I mean, I think the point to make is the book's not a kind of frivolous miscellany. It's very serious history, which taps into some of the latest research. And, and But the whole book is written as a narrative. It does all link together and it all kind of follows yeah. through. It's very thoughtful history, which deals with some light-hearted subjects, but also some very serious subjects. I mean, yeah. you can't write the history of hair without thinking about the collections of hair that are left at Auschwitz. Yeah, or scalping. Or history um, scalping, yeah. And also, I think we tried to write a we tried to write a literary book as well. Hmm. We tried to write something that I think was was really good prose. Um, I think that was something that was really important to both of us to hmm. write, so that it is a joy to read. Um, that's the kind of book I like reading. <laughs> and at the back of the book, you have a page for reader suggestions, which I don't think is something I've ever seen in a book. <laughs> that before. was his. That was his brilliant idea. <laughs> What's on do... your own personal list, though, of what you want to cover next? Ooh. Oh God, we have a list of like two hundred. I want to do Wales. So we, I've read Moby Dick over over the summer as one of my sort of. Each summer I read it, I have to read a great American novel. I read Moby Dick, and it's like, it's, I mean, it's wonderful, brilliantly written, uh, kind of like sort of reading through treacle. Uh, but I want, to do, I want to do Wales. Yeah, you want to do Wales. We did... Um... Handwriting, we're going to do handwriting. Yeah, mischief. I wanted to do... Tattoos. The... Yeah. Teeth. We're, we're, writing, we're writing a little book uh, at the moment about the Vikings... Yeah. And teeth are coming into that. I do the history of chewing instead of chewing. Teeth. I think chewing. I do the history mate. of saliva. A uh, spit. We want to do spit. No, tongue's horrible. We were going to do spit because we were going to do spitting in World War Two. That's um. Ooh, it's, nice. So uh, uh, Ooh, Hitler nice. very famously spat a lot, but there's also an interesting history of anti-Semitism and people spitting at Jews throughout um, the the 30s and then throughout the Second World War, and it happens now. Um, so there's a really interesting... And spittoons as well. Spittoons. So I, I'm chewing and spit <laughs> is where yeah. I've done it. Have you found that since you've written the book, um, you've been going about your everyday life yes. and something or an action on a daily, is caught in your... On a daily what? basis. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely on a recipes, daily basis. Recipes, that was the one that came to us because James was like, well, I like cooking, I, I, do, I make a recipe. And I was like, oh my God, let's do the history of recipes. I bet they're amazing. Lists. Lists were fantastic. Who Ta- knew how important lists are? Tattoos. I, and this comes about because a, a colleague of mine was t- telling me an anecdote about um, somebody that he knew whose husband or partner had died and she'd had the ashes uh, sort of um, put into ink and then tattooed onto her back as a sort of token. So I, that got me thinking about well, we need to do the history of tattoos. Yeah. Wells, I'd like to do history Wells. Uh, history of Wells is fascinating because it's all to do with the history of urbanism, urban growth. Um, and, Cows. And, hang on. Sorry. Wells also like chimneys in that you find the most amazing stuff in them. So the history of yeah. chimneys is obviously it's about chimney sweep, blah, blah, blah. It's all about architecture. That's kind of boring. It's not. It's about what you find in chimneys. And we find the most extraordinary things up chimneys. Shoes. Shoes, cats. 
Um, but letters, people, um, there was one collection of um, childhood letters for Father Christmas, which have been burnt, semi-burnt, been whipped up the fire and then got stuck. And so builders have been then finding them in sort of present modern renovation. So go and look up your chimney. There's someone found an early 17th century map of the world <laughs> stuck up their chimney. It would have been a bit drafty. So at some point, someone had taken, there are only like four of these things on earth. Um, and it was found in pieces up a chimney. <laughs> and there's like loads of legal documents. Chimneys are basically archives, yep. and I reckon that wells are as well. But you find all sorts of stuff down wells, like an archive. Secret rooms. If you come across the Tresham Papers, no. Tresham Papers, they're, they're this 16th century recusant family, so they are, you know, they're Catholic, and they decided that they were going to um, hide all of their all of their family papers. Uh, hiding. Now that's hiding. a good one. History of hiding. But they Brilliant. put they, they put them in a in a, a sort of an oil skin cloth and wrapped it all in wax yeah. and then put it inside a chimney and then bricked it all up. Huh. And when the Historical Manuscripts Commission uh, during the 19th century went round the country, in the UK, um, looking at um, private collections of manuscripts, they came across this and lo and behold, there was this amazing collection of family papers from the Elizabethan period that are now in the British Library. It's kind of it links to our history of holes. We thought, how do you do the history of holes? Holes are brilliant. It's, um, hide, people dig holes and hide them in. So it's from hordes, people peering through walls yep. and spying on each other. It's about sex, about voyeurism. Yeah, it's about watching people. Yeah. The history of holes is absolutely amazing. It's about people dropping things out of their pockets. Mm. It seems like there is literally nothing that you can do a history of. If you can do a history of a hole, which is essentially yeah. in, <laughs> it is a, game. The history a hole of silence. with nothing in it. The History of Silence, that's one that we want to do. I read Dermot McCulloch's book on silence and and Christianity, Um, silence and religion, and I think something on that would be So it's about people choosing to be silent, when they choose to be silent, and people being deliberately made to be silent. Um, That's good. But there is is nothing. You can just keep going. Cows. I I was talking earlier, I wanted to do cows. Nazi super cows. That's going to be in our World War II book. The Nazi super cow, which was uh, the attempt to, to... to, to uh, rear these amazing cows. You imagine that, you know, the sort of big chickens that you get with enormous sort of breast meat? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, the same with cows. So you just have this sort of stuffed up like a sort of cow on steroids. So that's for example, you could do the history of cows or you could do the history of rearing. We, 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 do, we do have a master list. Yeah. And occasionally we we ask people to make suggestions. And people people on Twitter are so good at coming up with ideas and which just lengthens the list that we have to that we have to do if somebody came and read your book or listened to your podcast what do you really want them to take away from it oh that's a really good question i would like them to take away the fact that history is a much more creative process than a lot of people take it to be um it's a lot of people it's like you you learn a story you tell the story and it's about remembering facts about remembering dates and it's not it's about thinking creatively yeah. so what i'd like people to do is to, is to suddenly realize that it's, it's it is an art form basically you, you you found it in knowledge you found it in proof and use good research to do so but the the way to be a professional historian or even an amateur historian is to think creatively about the past ask yourself questions and find out the answers. That's basically it. But if you don't think creatively and you don't, if you can't see the holes, the gaps that need to be filled in, then you're not doing it quite right. But hopefully this will allow people to realise that there's histories of all extraordinary things. And if they think about it right, they'll come up with an idea and then they'll realise that there isn't a history about it. 
So it's that, it's that it's a sense of intellectual curiosity with it as well. But I think also one of the things that we are passionate about is making history accessible and making history fun. I think it's it's making history enjoyable to as broad a range of people as you can. I mean, as a professional historian, you know, biggest conversation stopper is sometimes, you know, at a dinner party or when you're meeting people, um, you tell them you're a historian and they say, oh, I hated I hated history at school. And I've heard that, you know, for years and years and years. And what I think has been really heartwarming is just the interaction with people who listen to the podcast and hopefully who will read the book is that they suddenly sort of see history as something that is incredibly interesting. And vibrant. And vibrant. Yeah. And I think that's the big that's the big thing. People who don't want to sit down and read a dense biography of, you know, Churchill or or they're not into military history or whatever, you know, we, if they if they listen to the podcast or read the book, they're going to get something that is, you know, really exciting, yeah. dynamic um, that will really make them think. That was Sam Willis and James Daybell. You can read a version of this interview in the October issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now and also includes articles on Anne Boleyn's family, the Munich crisis of 1938 and women of ancient Rome, among other things. Sam and James's book, Histories of the Unexpected, How Everything Has a History, is due to be published early next month by Atlantic. And the two authors will be discussing the book at our History Weekend events in York and Winchester, which are now just a few weeks away. You can find out more details and book tickets at historyweekend.com. And that is all for today, but we'll be back on Thursday when Peter Hitchens will be challenging the traditional narrative of the Second World War. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 